Thank you, Daniel. If you have your Bibles open to Exodus 33, if you can put a uh, piece of paper or something in there to mark that spot and turn back a few pages to Exodus chapter number 19. Tonight is the introduction to my sermon. Next Sunday night will be the sermon. Um, I, I want to leave us with a question in our mind tonight to ponder over um, uh, over the next few days. So we're going to start on a little bit of a, a Bible journey here. Uh, in Exodus chapter 19, it has been three months since Israel came out of Egypt's bondage. Uh, they are at Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. Both of those names refer to the same place. And uh, they are, they are going to end up spending about two years there as God gives them the law. They're going to build the tabernacle. Uh, they've got some lessons to learn about the Lord while they are there. Uh, but it's about three months and God is about to speak to them. Look, if you would, in verse number 16. Uh, all of the people are gathered at the foot of the mount. The Bible says it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai began to resemble a volcano. It is not a volcanic mountain. Uh, it is the Lord descending there in, in a, a massive display of might and power. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mountain. So they are at the base of the mountain. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. When the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a voice. Now remember, Moses is not up on the mountain yet. He'll go there eventually. He's down at the, the bottom of the mountain with the people. And uh, this, this trumpet is, is sounding louder and louder. The mountain is quaking. It's on fire. Moses speaks and God answers Moses by a voice. Do you understand Moses is not the only one that heard that voice? All of those people, possibly a couple million of them, they are hearing the audible voice of God. How loud would that voice have had to have been to be heard over the thunderings and the rumblings of the earthquake and all of that? The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, verse 20, on the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. Moses went up. That would take a great level of faith, wouldn't it? Uh, you, you got a mountain that's on fire and Moses is called to go up there. We know later it was thick darkness with this cloud. Moses went up and the Lord said unto Moses, go down or otherwise go back down. Charge the people lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze. And many of them perished. They had built a fence around the bottom of this entire mountain. Uh, the rule was nobody crosses that line. Uh, if an animal or human being crossed it, they would die. They would perish in that. And uh, God knew the curiosity of some. He had Moses come up uh, uh, for a private meeting. He said, now I need you to go back, reinforce to these people not to go beyond those boundaries. Let the priest also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. 
Moses said unto the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, set bounds upon the Mount, uh, about the mountain sanctified. And the Lord said unto them, away, get thee down. Thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee, but let not the priest and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. So Moses has made the trip up. All the people are down there. And he comes back down with this message, reminding them, don't come any closer. This is the holy presence of God. Chapter 20 begins with the words, and God spake all these words, saying, and this is where the Ten Commandments were given and uttered by the Lord. Um, and I want you to understand that uh, the people are hearing the voice of God. God will write them down on tables of stone with his finger, uh, but the people are not just hearing the thunder, the lightning, and the voice uh, of God speaking to Moses, come on up. Look at verse um, 18 of chapter 20. All the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people stood it, they removed and stood afar off. They said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. They were terrified as they should have been. Um, the fear of God is a healthy thing. The respect, the reverence for who God is and what God has said is an important aspect of the believer's life. And, and they were terrified. They said, you go talk to God on our behalf. Um, this, this is too much for us. And uh, so Moses is going to do that and he's going to go back up there. And God's got a lot of things that he wants to say. Turn to chapter 24. Turn to chapter 24. In the midst of the instructions that the Lord gives to Moses, verse 1, he, that is God, said unto Moses, come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, that's Moses' brother, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's two eldest sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. So the vast multitude is down there. They're behind those fence lines. They're not allowed to come any closer. But God calls about 75 of them, including Moses, to come up to that mountain uh, with him. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, verse 2, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice. There was a rare moment of unity among God's people, especially this group, and said, all the words which the Lord hath said will we do. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, look a few verses on, look at verse number nine, the same chapter. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. So this select group is brought up there and they are seeing, if you will, a similitude of God. 
They're seeing God on a throne. They're this, uh, the, 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 at his feet was like a pavement, the Bible says, of a sapphire stone. That would have probably been a very brilliant blue color, uh, very crystal clear on, uh, on that. Um, and they are there, and, and, and it says, and they saw God, and they did eat and drink. They are in proximity to God like, like uh, they've never been in their lives. Uh, the Bible does not give us a reason why God brought them up. Later, Moses will go all the way to the top of the mountain by himself. I have surmised that God wanted the people to know that when Moses came down from the mountain and he had all of God's plan for them, that Moses wasn't making this up. There were, there were 74 eyewitnesses that saw God, that fellowshiped with God, that know that when Moses comes down, that what Moses is telling them is not of Moses' creation, but none other than God himself. These people are seeing things that you and I can't, we, we can barely fathom or, or imagine what that must have looked, out, looked like. There's no other generation of believers in human history that saw and heard what they did. They've heard the audible voice of God. They've seen this mountain all of a sudden on fire, the, the quaking and all of that. And, and out of the millions of them, now there's this select group that's been called up there. They're seeing God. They're fellowshipping with God. Chapter 32. Chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain. Moses went all the way up. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, they went back down. And I'm, I'm sure they reported to everybody what they saw. Who wouldn't? Uh, they had to have been excited about that. They had to have been almost transformed uh, by what they saw. And Moses had been up on the mountain. He's been up there now for 40 days. He's been up there for less than six weeks. You understand? Less than six weeks. All of the people saw the mountain quake. All of the people heard the voice of God. They heard that trumpet. 73 or 74 of them went up and they saw the similitude of God. But when they saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron. Aaron was one of that group that saw God and had fellowship with him. Aaron saw what the rest of the people could only imagine. Up make us gods which shall go before us for as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. We have no idea what happened to him. As far as they're, uh, they're thinking, he must have died up there. Uh, he didn't survive the journey. They're, they don't know. So they say, uh, I know we've heard the voice of the one true God. We've seen his power displayed. We want new gods. Man is always trying to come up with a new God. Generally, the God man comes up with is a God that likes what they like and agrees with what they think and lets them do what they want to do. Aaron should have stood his ground. He should have said that. Absolutely not. We've seen the one true God, but they wanted God's plural. Aaron said unto them, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters and bring them unto me. Um, in ancient times, if you were a slave, um, your master would put a golden earring in your ear. It wasn't a sign of, of fashion or anything like that. It was a symbol of slavery. These people were born and raised in slavery in Egypt. So they had these golden earrings there. So Aaron said, let's break them off. Let's break off our servitude and our slavery. Uh, we're going to finally be free. 
Um, and it's in a, it's really in a defiant way. All the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. He received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Some think the golden calf might've been in, in uh, memory of the, the, the cattle that pulled their wagons as they come out of the land. Others, because um, the bull god was famous throughout all ancient uh, cultures as a, as a powerful deity. Either way, they've replaced Jehovah God with this golden calf that Aaron has made for them. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to whom? The Lord. He didn't get that from God. He's, he, this is of his, his own imagination, and he's likening this golden calf to God. Well, he was up on the mountain. He saw God. Isn't that what the Bible said? He saw God. He knows God is not a golden calf. They rose up early on the, on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. A peace offering was sort of like a fellowship thing. They would bring their, their sacrifices in, and part of it would be completely consumed on the altar. The rest was cooked and spread out amongst them, and it was a, it was a feast. Uh, rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord and, and that type of thing. Um, and so they did that and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We know from elsewhere in scripture that phrase rose up to play didn't mean they said, okay, we're going to have a, a volleyball team. Anybody wants to play? And uh, over here, we're going to have some softball. Uh, no, they uh, stripped off their clothing. They had some pounding music blaring and they began committing open public immorality. They were naked. They were dancing wildly uh, and all of that. Verse seven, while this is all going down at the bottom of the mount, Moses has been 40 days with the Lord. The Lord said unto Moses, go get thee down. For thou people, for thy people, that thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You notice God doesn't want to claim them. Moses, these are your people. Uh, you brought them up. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Six weeks. Six weeks prior they're saying, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Six weeks prior, they're hearing the audible voice of God. Their leaders amongst them went up and saw, the, they, the Bible says they saw God and they feasted with God. Six weeks later, they're acting like a bunch of heathen. They, they got their pounding, driving music. Uh, they're naked. They're committing immorality. They're worshiping a golden idol. God said they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshiped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. I've been watching them. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Quick question here. It's not the heart of the sermon, but a quick question. What does God see when he looks at us? We'd like to think that he sees humble and yielded and spirit filled, but is, is that what God sees? I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them. Did they deserve the wrath of God? Yes or no? Oh, absolutely. In every way, God was fully justified in his anger. He said that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. I'll start all over with you. Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, 
Why does thy wrath, wrath wax hot against thy people? You notice Moses won't claim them either. God said, these are your people. Moses said, no way. He said, these are thy people. Uh, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses wasn't questioning God's righteous anger. He wasn't saying, God, you have no reason to be angry. Um, he is going to reason with the Lord through intercessory prayer. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he, that's God, bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. He said, God, if you do this, the Egyptians are going to say their God was a bad God. Their God just wanted to kill them. Our gods are much nicer than that. He said, turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. He's the second man in the Bible to pray such a bold prayer. The first was Abraham when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham pleaded with God for the sake of Lot and his family that lived in one of those cities. And so Moses has done the same thing. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self. Saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. He's quoting the word of God, the promise made to Abraham. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. The word evil there doesn't mean sin. It means harm. It means uh, something, something very bad was going to come upon them, and it was the judgment of God. God doesn't sin. The Lord changed his mind because Moses was willing to pray. Moses turned, went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side, and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. And he, Moses, said, it is not the voice of them that shout for the mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that what? Sing, do I hear? You suppose they were singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. How about amazing grace? How about victory in Jesus? This was a form of music that sounded like the noise of war. You understand the world's music hasn't changed. Heathen music has always followed the same pattern. Uh, one, one night, several years ago, probably four years ago, um, I, I absolutely could not sleep. And so at that time, the gym was open 24 hours a day. So I thought, instead of just laying here tossing and turning, I might as well go over and work out. Maybe a hard workout will let me be tired. And I can get a few hours sleep before daybreak. So I went over to the gym and I, I stepped in and uh, there, the, the, the counter, there's a place you take your little tag and check in under the scanner and it beeps you in. And there's usually somebody working the desk. Gym was open, lights were on, nobody was at the desk. So I just put my thing there at looped me in and uh, I went to the far back and uh, the young man that was supposed to be working there, he's back there working out. And there was one other person in the gym. The three of us had it to ourselves. The gym has uh, a, a station of their own that they play music on. And, and it's not music that I would choose or that I want to listen to. That's why I usually wear noise canceling, canceling headphones when I'm in there. But that night, this kid did his own thing. And I don't know what station that he had on. Uh, but it sounded like a bunch of people that all had their foot caught in a bear trap 
and they were just screaming at the top of their lungs and they were screaming obscenities. We're, we're talking, imagine the worst obscenities that there are. They're screaming this with this driving beat behind them. My, my workout didn't last very long. I, I, was, I was out of there. It was just, and it was, it was so loud. I talked to Sam about it later. He said, if, if the, uh, the uh, people in charge of Edge Fitness found out that that guy did that, he'd have been fired hands down. The, the noise of war. Hey, quick question. This is not the sermon either. Does your music sound like the noise of heaven or the noise of war? Very quiet. Music is a powerful force. You understand they're all naked. They're all dancing around. They're all immoral. That's not Sunday school music. That's not scripture songs. They're, they're singing the, the, the same music that became popular in, in, in our culture in the 1960s and 70s. And by the way, the music we used to listen to then, our parents were violently against it. And that was my, that's the stuff they play in elevators now compared to the stuff that's out there. These people have fallen a long way. God's ready to destroy them. Moses has pleaded with him. Um, and God said, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to relent. I'm not going to destroy them. Moses comes down now and he's getting his first taste of this from a distance. Verse 19, it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger waxed hot. God was mad before and Moses said, Lord, why are you mad at them? You can't do this. And now he's like, boy, God, do I get it. Moses' anger waxed hot. He cast the tables out of his hand and break them beneath the mount. Be careful that you don't let your anger cause you to break the word of God. It's amazing when we're mad, we think we've got an excuse to, to curse and to swear and to, and to say all manner of evil, to do all kinds of things. He took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. I, I doubt if that was like Kool-Aid or, you know, uh, you know, a Red Bull or something like that. This would have been hard to swallow. This would have been a difficult thing. Moses said unto Aaron, what did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Seriously, Aaron? You think Moses and God don't have a reason to be mad about this? Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. Question, who made the golden calf? Who gave the instructions for it? Aaron. Notice now it's your people. Aaron's trying to distance himself from it. For they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we, we want not what has become of him. And I said unto them, whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me. Then I cast it into the fire and they come out this calf. It was like magic. I just threw it into the fire and all of a sudden here comes this calf walking out, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, by the way, calves make a sound like that. They don't move till they're older. Um, really? We, we just read in there that you made it, dude, and then you carved it and all that kind of stuff. And he's trying to distance himself. Isn't that how kind of we are about our sin? We're right on top of everybody else's sin, but our sin is, is we minimize that. If we can blame it on somebody else, we do that. I haven't gotten to my sermon yet. Haven't gotten to the topic yet. We just had some, some uh, little uh, stops along the way. Um, when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side, let him come unto me. 
And all the sons of Levi, those were from the tribe Aaron and Moses were from, gathered themselves together unto him. He said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp. Slay every man his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and their fellow the people that day about 3,000 men. Apparently, even though Moses showed back up, and Moses has already destroyed the golden calf. These people are, are already facing his wrath um, and, and about to learn about the wrath of God. It, it sounds like there were a bunch of people said, I don't care what Moses said. I, I don't see anything wrong with the golden calf. I rather like that music. And Moses said, let's, let's get rid of the sin in our camp. And so then 3,000 people died. These are, these are the holdouts. These are not the ones that are drinking the water that, that uh, Moses uh, ground the, the, the golden calf up into um, and so forth. Uh, and it came to pass on the morrow, verse 30, that Moses said unto the people, ye have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. Moses now understood why God was so angry. There's been a great loss of life as a result of their sin. So Moses is going to go back up. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, you notice there's a big long dash there. That's supposed to be there. Moses is just kind of, it's almost like, I don't even know what to pray at this point. And yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. There's a part of him that, that maybe is struggling with, can, can God even forgive these people? I mean, just, just less than six weeks ago, they're hearing his voice. Some of them saw God. They heard the, the audible voice of God. And that, those same people are there, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And, 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 and look at what they've done so quickly. Please understand this. We often think that we're safe and sound. I'll never do that. So-and-so might have done that. I'll never do that. Do you understand? We can backslide in a heartbeat. David, it took one night. Peter took one night. Please understand that. Moses has that pause in his prayer, and then he prays something that I only know of one other person in the Bible that prayed like this. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Let me die and go to hell if that means you'll forgive these people. That's a lot of love. The only person that I know that prayed that was Paul. I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren that they might be saved. Moses was a remarkable individual. The Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath sinned against me, him I will blot out of my book. Therefore now go, Lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angels shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. God said, they don't want me with them right now because I'm, I'm, I'm steamed. My judgment will fall. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron had made. And the Bible never tells us what that plague was. But the people are suffering the wrath of God. Verse Chapter 33, verse 1. And this is where we're going to get into the message. And I'm, believe it or not, I'm almost done with, with where I want to go tonight. The Lord said unto Moses, depart and go up hence. Thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, unto thy seed will I give it. 
And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for I, thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. So God says, go ahead and leave. Head, head to the promised land. I told Abraham I was going to give it to his descendants, and I'm going to keep my word. He said, I'm going to send an angel before you that's going to drive out all of the, the wicked inhabitants of the land. Uh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And God repeated again, I'm not going to go up in the midst of thee, lest I consume thee. Do you understand that they are getting everything God promised them in spite of what they just did? God's going to fulfill his word. He's going to keep it all. But look at verse four. When the people heard these next two words, church, evil tidings. So what was so evil about this? God's going to give them the land. God's not going to destroy them. He's going to give them a land. He's going to send an angel, and that angel's going to do the work of driving out all of the enemies. God's going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And when the people heard that, the Bible says they saw that as evil tidings. This was not good news. What was so evil about it? They were going to get the blessing of God, but they weren't going to have the God of the blessing. They were going to get the stuff. They're going to get the land. They're going to get the milk and the honey. They're going to have all of that, but they will not have the presence of God with them. Some commentators and some Jewish rabbis have surmised that this meant that God was going to lead them uh, by an angel not, that, that is unnamed here to the promised land. But that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that represented the presence of God, it was going to be gone. I would remind you, they don't have a tabernacle yet. It's not been built yet. It's like God said, we're not even going to worry about that. Just go to the land. I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what I promised you and, and so forth. But I'm not going with you. And the people for one lucid moment realized that that was not good news. They had a few of them, this generation, not, not a lot of them. And sadly, uh, that's why that whole generation died in the wilderness uh, before ever stepping foot into the promised land. But for once, they saw that this was a bad thing. The Bible says they mourned. These were people that realized we're not going to have God's presence anymore. We heard his voice once. We're not going to hear it anymore. We saw his power and display once. We're not going to see that anymore. And they mourned over that. Now, they're still going to have the stuff. They're still going to have the blessings. They're just not going to have God. Question. What side of that issue would we have taken? Would we have been contented? Well, as long as God keeps blessing me, I don't care if I'm close. As long as God takes care of me and I get the raise in the car and the girlfriend or the boyfriend, I get all the good stuff. Uh, I don't care if I walk with God. I don't care if I hear his voice. Or would we be like these people saying, the blessings of God are meaningless if I don't have the God of the blessings. The Bible says they mourned and no man did put on him his ornaments. Remember, these were people that for 400 years had been slaves. But on the night of the Passover, when they left Egypt, God instructed them, go to your Egyptian masters and borrow of them jewels of, uh, of gold and silver, precious stones and all of those things. Um, and what it was is God was making sure that they were getting back pay for 400 years of being a slave. 
So these slaves, former slaves, they're pretty wealthy people, just about all of them. And, and, and they've, they've got necklaces and crowns and they've got rings and bracelets. They wore uh, golden uh, bands on their arms and so forth. And, and they're decked out as they'd never ever hoped and dreamed they could be. And all of a sudden, they take all of those things off. All of the trappings of beauty and, and honor to themselves and all of that. They take them off and God had told them to do so. And to their credit, they listened to God. They said, what do these things mean if we don't have God? We're so worried about what we look like instead of our, am I right with God? We're so worried about being cool. We're so worried about wearing the, 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 the best and the finest rather than do I walk with God? These people, like I said, it's one of those rare lucid moments and they humble themselves before the Lord. Why is humility such a hard thing? Do you, do you realize Revival starts with humility. It doesn't start with prayer. It starts with humility. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall what? Humble themselves and pray. God resisteth the proud. He has, he has, he has no time for that. He resists the proud. He shoves it away, but he giveth grace, favor, the goodness of the Lord unto the humble. These people... In a rare moment, they completely humble themselves because they realize what do all of these jewels mean and, and, and what's a land that flows with milk and honey mean if we don't have God. It was God who'd redeemed them. It's God who kept his promises. It's God who had parted the Red Sea. It was God that was, who was feeding them on a day-to-day -day basis with manna from heaven. It was God that was providing them abundance of water in the middle of the Sinai Desert. And they realize if we don't have God, we really don't have anything. So they humbled themselves in the sight of the Lord. It was one of those rare moments. Look at verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle. This is not the tabernacle, capital T, that they would later build uh, as this book unfolds. It was a tent um, that they had, and it, it, it appears that it was in the center of the camp. Um, and, and this is where the people would come for judgment from Moses. We're not going to take the time to turn to it, but you might want to put a, 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 a note in your margins there. Uh, in Exodus 18, verses 13 and 14, Moses would sit in this place, probably this tent, and every day people would line up for him for judgment. Uh, Moses, what, the, what are we supposed to do about this? Or I'm, I'm having a problem with, with, with uh, my neighbor on, on this. And how, do, how should we handle this? Uh, how do we deal with this situation with our kids? And all day long, for hours and hours at a time, uh, they would line up. Uh, and probably it was at this place. And they called it the tabernacle and pitched it. So Moses takes it. It was in the middle of the camp, Exodus 18. He now pitches it without the camp, afar off from the camp. It's no longer in the middle of them. He's taken it outside, and the Bible says afar off. Anybody that wanted to go there was going to have to make a trip. Anybody that was serious about what is about to follow, they were going to have to go the distance. And notice this, and it came to pass that everyone which, next three words, church, sought the Lord, not seeking blessing, not after stuff, they're seeking the Lord, 
went out under the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp, outside of the camp. By the way, we only know of two people that went in there. Moses, anybody know the other one? Joshua, he'll be named later in this chapter. That doesn't mean others did not go. The Bible only names those two. It came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle, he's going to go out because he's seeking God. Moses was a well-known figure to them. The Bible says that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. So he's walking through the camp from where his tent is and everybody sees that he's going out there and they don't follow him. They don't go with him. They're content to let somebody else find God for them. They watch him go. The Bible says, came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle when the Lord talked with Moses. So God just sort of shut the door, said, you don't get to come in now. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and all the people rose up and worshiped every man in his tent door. They're going to stay home. They're not going to get too close to God. They'll let Moses do that for them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, look at this face to face. As a man speaketh unto his friend. Do you know the devil wants us to believe that God's our enemy? If you live for God, you're not going to be happy. You live for God, you're not going to have any fun. You live for God, you're going to miss out on all the good. The devil wants us to believe that. That was the first lie in the Garden of Eden. The, the serpent told Eve, God doth know that ye shall not die, for in the day that ye eat thereof, your eyes will be open, and ye shall be as God's knowing good and evil. God's holding you back. You don't want that. You need to be free from all of that. No, he's a friend. The Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Joshua was a servant. He would fight some battles uh, under Moses' direction. He'd become a mighty captain. And when Moses went to heaven, he would be the man to replace Moses, and he'd become a great leader. One book of the Bible bears his name. But at this point in time, if you will, don't take this wrong. Joshua's a nobody. He's not one of the elders of Israel. He's a servant, happy to do so. Um, throughout uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, he's always referred to as Moses' servant or Moses' minister. When, and when, when Joshua chapter 1 opens up and Moses is dead, Joshua is still called Moses' servant and Moses' minister. There was something about Joshua said, uh, I want whatever Moses just had with God. I want to know God the way Moses knows God. Now the whole nation is watching to see what's about to happen. God has said, you can find me. You just got to come out here. We know Moses went. We know Joshua went. So why didn't anybody else go? Did they not need God? I think we all know the answer to that. They needed him badly. They needed his mercy. They needed his grace. They needed his wisdom and all of those things. But there was some reason that they didn't go. Question. How badly do we want the presence of God? How much do we want God's presence? Turn to Psalm 42. I'm about to wind this down. This is the question. How badly do we want to be close to God? 
And I'm not talking about having a warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm talking about having the presence of God in our lives. Psalm 42, David said in verse 1, as the heart, the heart is a type of deer. Panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. In ancient times, hunting deer especially was a, was a, a, a skill that took a lot of uh, learning about it. One of the things they would do is they would, they would hunt them where the water holes were because every animal had to drink. And so they would be there, and as the deer came down, deer are very skittish animals, and they're always uh, testing the air. Their ears are twitching. They're always listening for any sound. They're always looking around. They're seldom at rest for, uh, in, in case there's a predator around. And uh, so as they would come for the water, that's where the hunters would come out and want to uh, go after them. But they're fighting with, with crude weapons. They didn't have high-powered stuff like we do today, crude bows, arrows, spears. Uh, some things like that. And at the first sign of noise, that deer is going to take off and, and, and melt back into the hills. But the deer's got to drink. He's already thirsty. That's why he's coming in the first place. He knows there's danger at the water hole, but he needs that water or he will die. And this will go on uh, and on for a little while, depending on the state of the animal in question, until finally that deer doesn't care what predator is there, that there's a hunter there or not. All he knows is, I want water. I need water. And that David is saying, that's the way I feel about God. God's not a matter of curiosity. Let me just see what he's all about. I need God. I need him for my every waking moment. I need to hear his voice. When I open his word, I need to hear from him. I need him to talk to me. I can't live without him. And David said, that's how my soul, uh, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and, be, and appear before God? We know in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said of all the things that he'd accomplished in his life, he said, I count them but dung that I may win Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Even if it means that I've got to suffer to be close to God, I want that. I want to know God. Question, how badly do we want to know God? How badly do you want to know God? I know you want me to know God. You want me to walk with God. You want me to hear from God so I can bring you a message from God. And that is my calling. That is, that is my responsibility. But uh, he's your God too. He's your father too. You're supposed to have a relationship with him. And that's part of what I'm supposed to do is show you how to have that relationship with God. Do you want it? Or are you just content with the stuff? God gives you, well, I don't really need anything. I got a nice car. I got a good job. I got good income coming in. I got money in the bank. Uh, everything's going pretty good in my life. Is God going to have to rip it all away from you before you realize how much you need him? How, how much do you want God? One last scripture and we're done tonight. Revelation chapter 3. I am burdened that our church have a spiritual revival and all it's going to begin with a hunger and a thirst after God. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, John was told by the Lord Jesus to write seven letters to seven churches. Okay? There, there was going to be Ephesus and Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They were seven real churches located in a region called Asia, Today, it's the country of Turkey. 
Those seven letters were different, one for each church, but they all got the letters that went to everybody else. In those letters, there is a personal message to a specific church. The church at Ephesus needed to hear a certain message from God, as did the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. There is also contained within those letters a practical message to all churches. They all end with, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So we may not necessarily have the same issues at the church of Thyatira, but we need to learn from the letter that was written to them. So there's a personal letter to a specific church. There's a practical letter to all churches. There's a, pr a prophetic message to believers of all ages contained in those seven letters. Uh, Revelation's a book of prophecy. The church at Ephesus represents the apostolic church in the first century. While the apostles are alive, the churches are being established. The word of God, the New Testament uh, is being given and written down um, and so forth. And that is the, the first century church. When we come to the last church, look at Revelation chapter 3. It's the church of Laodicea, the last of the seven. That is the church representing God's church in the last days. This is us, folks. This is us. Look what God has to say to them. Verse 14, under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, not neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. You can do something with a backslider and you can do a lot of good with somebody that's on fire for God, but somebody that's lukewarm, that thinks I'm fine just like I am. I don't need anything. They're pretty hard to motivate. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I like hot coffee. I like iced coffee, but don't give me coffee at room temperature. Anybody with me on that? If you're not with me on that, get right with God. Lukewarm coffee is terrible. God said, I'm ready to spew an entire church out of my mouth because thou sayest, and look at this, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Boy, has God blessed us. Look at our new chairs. Boy, we got a piano and a sound system. We got carpet and we got, all, we got all of this. We got money in the bank. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. They're enjoying the blessings of God. And notice what God says about them. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He said, you're a mess. And you don't see it because you, you figure because you've got all this stuff that you got all you need. He said, you need God. We'll skip a couple verses. Please notice what else they were missing. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. They had all the nice stuff. They just didn't have Jesus. He's on the outside knocking on the door. This isn't a salvation message. This is a message to God's church. He said, you got my blessings, but you don't want me and you don't even know I'm not there. Wouldn't that be sad for us to wake up one day and realize we've been going through all the motions, singing all the right songs, reading all the right verses and carrying the right version of the Bible. But that whole time God's been standing out there because there were things in our lives we weren't real willing to change and give up and get right with God. We, we weren't willing to get right with each other. We, we, we were we we're enjoying that grudge. We, we rather enjoy it. We, we, we're, we're, we, we've come to the place where yeah, that feels pretty good. God said, if, any, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. 
He that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? I wonder if God's opinion of us, we're in the Laodicean age. I wonder if God looks at us and say, they think because they got all this stuff and the bills are paid and all of that, that they got me. It's not always the same. How badly do you want God as a Christian? How badly do we want God as a church? Uh, enough to humble ourselves? Enough to fast? What's he talking about fasting on Wednesdays? Seriously? How, how much do we want God? Enough to get right with God? Enough to get that sin out of our life? Enough to get right with each other? You understand humbling begins with realizing I've got some pride and that pride issue has got to be dealt with or God's going to stay on the outside. He ain't going to deal with me. So my question in closing, I've, I've got about a five-point outline. We're going to be back in Exodus chapter 33 next Sunday evening. And we're going to look at uh, a man who said, I want God. The people said, this is evil tidings. Yeah, we, we want God with us, but only Moses and Joshua went out and found him. What are we going to be like? Can we bow our heads for prayer tonight? How many of us can say, Pastor, I'm saved and I know it?